Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter Gun Control Episode 2.6. What do you have to say for yourself, Bubble Boy? Good day. <laughs> That's not bad. Thank you. Bubble Boy Tower is... Tower 3. Bubble so, uh, Boy is yeah. a joke that uh, will only become obvious to everybody uh, probably about a year from now. You will get to see... You get to understand why I now call Ray yeah. Bubble Boy. Let the tension build. The National Rifle, Associ- Rifle Association, right? The NRA. Um, I think, as I pointed out in an earlier episode, one of the things that makes the United States different from Australia when it comes to gun control is we don't have a gun lobby as powerful as the NRA. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that makes America different and its influence on the public discourse. Uh, So I guess in this episode, I wanted to explore why the NRA is so powerful and get into a little bit of the history of the NRA. Are you ready for Mm -hmm. that? Uh, It is. Well, let's go way, way back to the beginning. How did the NRA start, Ray? Well, in the Garden of Eden... No, no, it's too far back. Okay, so the the National Rifle Association was first chartered in the state of New York on November 16th, 1871, by Army and Navy Journal editor, wow, what an exciting job, William Conant Church and Captain George Wood Wingate. On November 25th, 1871, the group voted to elect its first corporate officers, Union's Army Civil War General Ambrose Birdside, who was a shitty-ass general. Check out Battle of Fredericksburg if you don't believe me. He was a Rhode Island, he had worked as a Rhode Island gunsmith, and he was elected the first president of this um, of this organization. Now, when it first came about, basically the... Um, the accuracy of the riflemen during the Civil War sucked so much that I think it was uh, the Civil War records show that 1,000 shot rifle shots had to be had to be, had to be shot if I can say to hit um, a single soldier. So soldier. So Burnside said we have to do something about this. So they scattered. They sent people to Canada, to Britain, to Germany to to observe other militaries and other armies and and check out their marksman training programs to incorporate that back into America. So basically, it was a, it was an opportunity. It was an organization to treat to teach people proper marksmanship. And I'd like to point out that uh, General Burnside was also the inventor of sideburns. I shit you not. Yes. No, he was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Big old giant whiskers, um, that, and he got a ton of men killed at Fredericksburg. Uh, his two, and, and obviously the NRA, those are his three claims to fame. So the NRA got involved in political lobbying as early as 1934 when it began mailing 
its members with information about some upcoming firearms bills. Probably Mm. no surprise to anyone there. Um, It started lobbying because there was a couple of gun control bills that were going to go through Congress. And of course, the NRA wanted to alert their members about these gun control bills. Why were they doing that? The NRA was asking its members to support (gasps) the National Firearms Act of 1934. Because they agreed with gun control. So their theory was to literally support this to what? Make the country a safer place? Yeah. Yeah. The the NRA was all about gun control. In the early 1920s, the National Revolver Association, which was the NRA's handgun training counterpart, proposed legislation for states that included requiring a permit to carry a concealed weapon. They suggested that there should be a five-year prison sentence if a gun was used in a crime. Damn. And that non-citizens should be banned from buying a handgun. So as early as the 1920s, they were involved in trying to craft some form of gun control legislation. Um, They also, the NRA, the National Revolver Association, this is, proposed that that gun dealers should have to turn over their sales records to police They wanted to create a one-day waiting period between buying a gun and actually getting it. Mm -hmm. Those two provisions, turning over sales records to police and creating a waiting period, are opposed by the NRA today. But in the 1920s, they were recommending it to state legislators. Common sense solutions. So not only did the NRA support the National Firearms Act of 1934, they also supported the Gun Control Act of 1968. Wow. In fact, this may surprise you, Ray, but the NRA helped write most of the federal laws restricting gun use up until the 1980s. I am surprised by that. But again, they, you know, were trying to, I guess help control violence and be moderate and common sense. So again, what the fuck happened later on? So the question is, what happened to the Second Amendment during the first 100 years of the NRA's existence? Because they didn't seem to care. Yeah. Maybe they just hadn't heard of it until the 1980s. (laughs) Now, can can you guess why they were supporting gun control in the 1930s? Um, I'm guessing all the violence, uh, the gangsters, the Bonnie and Clyde's, the baby face, the Al Capone's, just too much shooting them up, bang, bang going on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> shooting them up, bang, bang. That's exactly what they wrote in the legislation. There's too much shooting them up, bang, bang going on. You're welcome. It was introduced, uh, the National Firearms Act, just after the repeal of Prohibition. Mm-hmm. Um, our good friend, uh, FDR, was in power. And the, the, it, the Firearms Act was designed to get Tommy guns off the streets. Mm. By the way, do you know why they were called Tommy guns? Um, no, please tell me. <laughs> I will. Uh, it was the Thompson submachine gun oh. invented by an American, John T. Thompson, 
1918. He built it for the Allies to use in World War I. Nice. Good job, I guess. Now, in 1929, of course, Al Capone had his St. Valentine's Day massacre when his guys were disguised as Chicago cops and they killed seven of their rivals with Tommy guns. Then, as you mentioned, Bonnie and Clyde had their spree from 1932 to 1934. John Dillinger robbed 10 banks in 1933 using a machine gun. So in 1933, when FDR became president, he made fighting crime and gun control part of the New Deal. Mm. The NRA actually helped him draft the National Firearms Act of 1934 and the expanded Gun Control Act in 1938. The president of the NRA at the time was a guy by the name of Carl T. Frederick, Mm -hmm. who was a 1920 Olympic gold medal winner for marksmanship and also a lawyer. And he praised the new gun controls in Congress. He stood up in Congress and testified, I have never believed in the general practice of carrying weapons. I do not believe in the general promiscuous toting of guns. I think it should be sharply restricted and only under licenses. Wow. Said the NRA president. That's impressive and shocking all at the same time. So the whole doctrine of gun rights being balanced by gun controls held then for pretty much 50 years. Mm -hmm. The 1968 Gun Control Act was prompted by Kennedy's assassination in 1963, but it took five years to actually be passed. Um, Now... As you probably know, Kennedy was shot and killed by um, a trio of CIA and mob secret hitmen. But the quote-unquote official version says that he was killed by a a lone gunman who uh, had purchased his rifle from an ad in an NRA magazine, The American Rifleman. So there were congressional hearings after that. There was a ban on mail-order gun sales discussed, but no law was passed until 1968. Now, at the hearings, Mm -hmm. the NRA executive vice president, Franklin Orth, supported a ban on Frank Orth, Frankie Orth, (laughs) Frank, Frank, Frank Orth, Frankie O, Frank Orth. Fuck off, all of you. Fuck off. He supported a ban on mail order sales. He said, we do not think that any sane American who calls himself an American can object to placing into this bill the instrument which killed the President of the United States. Ah. Now, surprisingly, uh, I've spent a lot of time on the NRA's website over the last month because I'm... Figured one of us had to do some work, and mm-hmm. I can here, find here. no mention of any of this history of the NRA supporting <laughs> gun control laws on the NRA's website. Right. I'm sure it's a completely innocent mistake, and they have overlooked 
their long history of supporting gun control. Yeah, there's probably stuff about sporting and hunting and target shooting and that kind of stuff instead. And Jesus personally <laughs> st- was strapped, was strapped. to Smith and Wesson. Well, then- <laughs> now, um, the, the law got passed in 68 because, of course, Martin Luther King was killed in 68. Then Bobby mm-hmm. Kennedy was killed a couple of months later. And then they renewed efforts to pass the bill. And it regulated the firearms industry and firearm owners focused on regulating interstate commerce in firearms Mm. by prohibiting interstate firearms transfers except amongst licensed manufacturers, dealers, and importers. So it's trying to restrict the transfer of guns across state. Right. The, The political elite of America at the time Mm -hmm. feared that violence was too prevalent. Kennedy, the two Kennedys had been killed. Yeah. uh, And, and Martin Luther King. And they, they were worried that too many people had access to guns, but a particular kind of person they were worried about, Ray. Can you guess who it was that they were worried about? Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, a non-white? Hmm, yes. So, it's the 60s, mm-hmm. um, and as we saw in the last episode, I think, a massive increase in violence in the United States, violent crimes and homicide rates in the 60s. Right. Late 60s in particular. Um, partly, a lot of factors for it, I'm sure, Soldiers coming home from Vietnam, um, civil rights movement, protests over America's involvement in Vietnam, etc., and and end of segregation in the South, and a lot of black people, you know, wanting their rights, and a lot mm-hmm. of white people being scared by black people. Yeah. Um, in May of 1967, two dozen or so members of the Black Panther Party walked into the California State House carrying rifles to Ooh. protest a gun control bill. The governor of California at the time, shit himself, gentleman by the name of gentleman by the name of Ronald Reagan, uh-huh. said, "There's no reason why on the street today a citizen should be carrying loaded weapons." Hmm. Let, let that sink in a minute. Yeah. There's Any Republicans no still listening to our shows? <laughs> Ronald Reagan, your, your savior. Your God. <laughs> Jesus Mark II himself said no one should be carrying a loaded weapon on the street. Mm. That's it. End of argument. It's all over. Gun control today. I mean, come on. Can't yeah. argue with Jesus Reagan. Um, so it was the Black Panthers, not the NRA, who were the first in 20th century American history to really use the Second Amendment Mm -hmm. to justify an individual's right to carry a loaded weapon. Mm. God, that must have torn them apart. Yeah. The NRA were arguing for gun control, the Black Panthers were arguing 
against it. Right. Now, the Black Panthers, for people who uh, were too young or too young to really have heard of them, they were a revolutionary black nationalist and socialist organisation founded by two guys in October 1966, Bobby Seale and Huey Newton. Huey Newton, of course, was one of Donald Duck's nephews. Uh, he was <laughs> Dewey and Louie. Uh, along with him, they changed their name to distance yeah. themselves from the Duck family. Uh, Good call. Yeah. Now... From the very beginning, the Black Panther Party uh, was an armed citizens patrol movement. Mm -hmm. okay, think of Black Li the Black Lives Matter movement today and what they're right. all about. They're you know, about protecting black lives, black citizens from white police mostly. Well, that's exactly what the Black Panther Party was about in 1966. There was a lot of police brutality in Oakland, California, yeah, and the Black Panther Party was set up to sort of act as a, a, a defence for the black people in Oakland against the cops, and of course they mm. needed guns to defend themselves against the cops. Now, of course, the white people weren't very happy that the Black Panthers were running around with guns, so they wanted guns to defend themselves against the Black Panthers. Ah, so now it becomes a Cold War. All on its own. Oh, it wasn't cold, motherfucker. It was, okay. a, hot, it was a hot war. This is why I said homicide right. rates went up in the late 60s. Good point. Damn. Now, uh, apparently a lot of uh, black people had moved to, Cal to Oakland and other parts of California um, from the south. So there was, a, there was a lot of slums, there was a lot of poverty, there was a lot of people, uh, you know, a lot of white people scared by the influx of the blacks that were coming in, a lot of tensions. Uh, there was probably some crime going on as a result of poverty and, and lack of infrastructure. Um, the cops got a little bit tough, the blacks fought back, and this is how it, it all really started to escalate out of control. In 1971, the uh, ATF, uh, what is it? Uh, arms, tobacco, and no fire. Alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. That's the ATM. Right. Raided a lifetime NRA member's house who was suspected of having a large illegal cache of arms. And he mm -hmm. was shot and killed during the raid. Damn. Did you read about this? No. Okay. Uh,. This started a split inside of the NRA. Up until mm -hmm. this point of time, the NRA had been pro-gun control. But then one of right. their members got killed for having illegal guns. Ah. And, and it started to, started to create a divide. Now, you know, there were gun dealers who thought they were being harassed by the laws and it was holding them back from being able to sell more guns to more people. Rural states felt they were being punished for urban America's gun problems. And in 1975, the NRA cr created a new lobbying arm called the ILA, um, the Institute for Legislative Action, not to be confused with the JLA, which used to be a great organization until uh, Zack Snyder killed it you know, this year, destroyed its reputation. Forever. Oh, my God. Uh, the new lobbying arm, the ILA, was under the control of a guy called Harlan B. Carter. I love the mm -hmm. name Harlan. You don't get more deep south no. than Harlan, really. <laughs> Harlan. 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 
Harlan. How you doing today, Harlan? Harlan B. Um, now, he was the former chief of the U.S. Border Patrol, and he right. really had this libertarian view of expanding the rights of gun owners in the country. By the way, yeah. Harlan also once killed a kid with a gun. Oh, shit. Uh, he was a Texan. According to Carol Vinzant's 2005 book, Lawyers, Guns and Money, mm -hmm. Harlan, uh, when he was 17, killed a Mexican teenager. Fuck. By the way, Harlan B, do you know what the B stood for? Badass? No, what? Bronson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Harlan Bronson. Yeah. 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 People like that are destined to kill somebody. Harlan motherfucking Bronson. <laughs> so perfect. Uh, he confronted a Mexican teenager who he believed was trying to steal his family's car. Carter um, pulled out a shotgun on the kid, told him to come into his house for questioning. Because he's a was, cop. The kid said, no, he was 17. He wasn't a cop. You right, no, I was... You mean for yeah. right. He was a cop yes. later, though. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> the 15-year-old Mexican teenager said no. Uh, Carter tried to force him. The kid pulled a knife and Carter shot and killed him. Shit. Now, why would you pull a knife on someone pointing a shotgun at you? I don't know. Not, not the best move. No. No. Now, he was convicted of murder, but then it was overturned in appeal. What? Okay. Because it's Texas. Yeah. Now, in 1976, the NRA's board of directors fired Harlan and mm. 80 other employees who were Damn. pushing for a more expansive view of the Second Amendment and were fighting against the NRA's support for uh, any gun control regulation. Right. But Carter shot them all with a shotgun. No. <laughs> he, he plotted his revenge, and mm -hmm. a year later at the NRA's annual meeting, 1977, right. um, he uh, sort of basically took over the NRA. He had a mm. deputy, Neil Knox, who was even more extreme than he was. He wanted to roll back all existing gun laws, including bans on machine guns. Shit. And he also said the federal government had killed Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy as part of a plot to advance gun control. Yeah. Hmm. Now, I tend to agree that they killed <laughs> King and Kennedy, <laughs> but not for that reason. Not for that know? reason. Right, and other right. reasons. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I just wanted to mention in between 1970, uh, you were talking about 1975 with Harlan, 1977, the annual convention. And in between that, 1976, uh, the NRA sets up their political action committee, the Political Victory Fund, which is created uh, to start getting involved in elections. So again, they're, they're, they're in some ways becoming more radical and also starting to dip their toe into trying to have some influence over elections starting in 1976. Now, Carter managed to take over the NRA uh, and became the new president. Mm -hmm. He One of the first things he did was change their motto on their new headquarters in mm. uh, Washington, D.C., where he selectively edited the Second Amendment, 
down to the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Leaving out all mm. of that, you know, complicated militia, militia. well-regulated <laughs> militia. It's nonsense. Too many words. He actually brought in the Barry and Stan marketing agency. And they were like, too many words in that motto, Chief. No, wordy. no, no, we need to get it it's down. It's wordy. We need to get it down. Yeah. Where's my eraser? Now, after he was re-elected to lead the NRA in 1981, the New York Times actually dug up this story of him killing the 15-year-old Mexican teenager. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently Harlan had changed the spelling of his first name in order to hide from it. I think it was originally oh. H-A-R-L-E-N, and he changed it to L-O-N, so right. it wouldn't come up in 1981's version of Google. Gotcha. He initially, when they, when they confronted him with this, he claimed that he wasn't responsible for the shooting. No, I didn't do it. It was someone else. Right. They said, look, we've got the fucking court records. He was like, go away, leave me alone. Right. Um, but the hardliners in the NRA loved it. Oh, God. Because he, he killed a wetback. <laughs> they yeah. were like, you go, boy. That's right. That's right. So he became You're even more popular. Who better Jeez. to lead them than a man who had killed a kid because the kid pulled a knife on him? Right. He had the gun on him first, true, but still, let's <laughs> not worry about technicalities. God. So this is when the NRA really starts to ramp up their political lobbying, uh, at least in terms of the anti-gun control political lobbying, as you said before. In 1977... Um, they started publishing a lot of new articles on the Second Amendment, trying to rewrite American history, say mm-hmm. that it had always been understood that the Second Amendment uh, protected the individual's right to carry arms, when, as we've seen, that was never the case. It was right. pretty much always seen as a state's right, well-regulated militia. Yeah. But so uh, they started to just rewrite yeah. history by what was was it Goebbels who said if you lie tell a lie loud enough and long, long enough, enough it'll become long truth. Enough. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So basically they were expanding their membership by focusing on political issues and forming coalitions, uh mostly with conservative po- politicians, obviously a lot of them Republicans. So they're using these issues to beat the war drums, if you will, to bring more people into their membership. And obviously it worked. It you know, you use fear to bring people in because you have the solution. They all band together and, and their membership started growing um, at a fast, a lot faster rate after 1977. In uh, 1982, there was a Senate Judiciary Subcommittee chaired by Utah Republican and Mormon, Orrin Hatch, mm-hmm. that uh, actually favored this revisionist history. They claimed that uh, there had been they had discovered long-lost proof of an individual's constitutional right to bear arms. I think they had Nicolas Cage had to go and steal it out of the Vatican, (laughs) Uh, but they found it. It's here. I got it right here. Um, Ten years after that, uh, the former U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice Warren Berger who was mm-hmm. a conservative, had been appointed by Richard Nixon. He was in an interview on 
PBS's NewsHour, and he called this revisionist view of the Second Amendment one of the greatest pieces of fraud, and I repeat the word (laughs) fraud, on the American public by special interest groups that I have ever seen in my lifetime. Damn. That's saying something. Now, 13 years after Berger died... In 2008, the U.S. Supreme Court, led by Justice Antonin Scalia, Mm -hmm. would enshrine that fraud into the highest echelons of American law by decreeing that the Second Amendment included the right to own a gun for self-protection in one's home. Mm. So it was 2008 really, when this started to become the perceived wisdom of the land. Jeez. Uh, 220 years after the framing of the Second Amendment, it suddenly became about an individual's right. But, I mean, just just because he's the Supreme Court judge, because obviously that's not what it was before, but when someone in that position uses their authority de facto, that's now the reason or the purpose of the Second Amendment? Well, it wasn't just him. The The Supreme Court, you know, it, it votes, right? Right, right. I think it has seven members at any one time, and they vote. Nine. He, he, is it nine? I thought it was seven. I think it's nine. No, it's nine. Nine? Okay. Um, yeah. so, they had the, so the Supreme Court uh, vote, 2008, gun control. I think it was like... Five four, um, Columbia mm, versus Heller. District of Columbia versus Heller was the decision. Yeah, it was a five four decision. You're right. Um, so in two thousand and eight, okay. it was the District of Columbia versus Heller. It was a five four decision that protected an individual's right to possess a firearm. So there you go. So 2008 is when it happened. So he was just one of the uh, 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 justices, but he was sort of the leader of the uh, pro-individual right movement. Um, The dissenting opinion was written by Justice John Paul Stevens. And, uh, yeah, he said it was bullshit. But, (laughs) uh, you know, it was voted 5-4, man. Yeah. Uh, Justice Stevens was joined in his dissent by Justices David Souter, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, everyone's favourite Supreme Court Justice, and Stephen Mm -hmm. Breyer. So, um, you know, certainly wasn't unanimous in the the Supreme Court, and it took uh, 220 years to get there. But they did. Today, the NRA spends about $250 million a year. Um, and in fact, actually a lot more than that. 2016 is about $433 million in um, revenue they brought in. And they spent more than that too. But they spend it on a whole bunch of stuff, um, which I want to go into a bit of a breakdown. But they have they spend far more than all of the gun control advocacy groups put together. They've got a much larger membership than any gun control groups as well. And, you know, as we said, I think in the last episode, one of the problems that people that are pro-gun control in the U.S. have is fighting against 
the NRA. The NRA have been building this machine, this operation, since, well, since 1871, but in particular to, to fight against gun control laws since right. 1976, 77. Um, so, you know, they've been doing it for nearly my entire life. So the NRA have been building their, their ground organisation, if you like, since 1871, but, right. you know, with a particular effort to... to fight against gun control laws since 1977. None of the gun pro-gun control people have been at it for that long in that kind of a coordinated fashion. So they've got this massive, massive operation with a shit ton of money. Right. And, and, and they just keep it simple. I mean, they're a single-issue organization. They rate all the people in Congress A, A+. Plus. You know, if you go along with, 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 their vote, with, their, uh, with their desires. And so you can just label uh, a congressman or a senator, an A or an F, and that just stigmatizes them right away or it rewards them. I mean, they have got this down to a science. Like you said, they throw a ton of money at it and they can really be selective. And there's there's just plenty of examples of them just going after people who disagree with them and, and then it scares everybody else into line. So a very powerful, very effective organization. They only spend about three million a year on sort of lobbying, trying to influence gun policy per se. Mm-hmm. But that's only their recorded contributions to Congress and Senate. Right. They spend a ton of money elsewhere via PACs and individual independent expenditures, funds which are harder to track. We know that between 2000 and 2010, they spent about 15 times as much on campaign contributions as gun control advocates do. In the lead up to the 2016 election, the NRA spent more than $30 million in support of Donald Trump's campaign. Damn. Yeah. Now, also in 2016, the NRA reported $433.9 million for total revenue, which is up from $256 million in 2012. <laughs> They nearly doubled, maybe not double, but that's like uh, 60, 70%. I don't know, half of that's 125, more than that. I don't know. I just said 80% increase in revenue in four years. That's insane. Yeah. No other business. <laughs> even hopes for that. right well let, let me just for a second take the nra out, out of uh america real quick the united states and like you were saying in two, in 2012 88 of republicans and 11 percent of the democrats in congress received nra PAC money um these people again they get rated according to uh how they vote as, as far as um the NRA issues, but the modern NRA opposes uh, new gun re- legislation calling for stricter uh, enforcement of the existing laws. And they, like you said earlier, this is something that's been with them for a while. They want to increase sentencing for gun related crimes. They have opposed Canadian gun registry, supported Brazilian gun rights, and criticized Australian gun laws. So, yes, as powerful as they are uh, inside the United States, they certainly are reaching out beyond our borders and trying to, I guess, affect other nations just um, maybe because you know, if you truly believe that you're right about something, you want the entire world to be the same way. Well, I think <laughs> you're being a little bit naive about their reasons for that. No, I was, no, I was yeah, yeah. 
little tongue-in-cheek there. But yeah. What do you think the real reasons are for? I mean, I don't know. I mean, just to control one government, to control one country, is that ever enough? I mean, why, why you know? Oh, right, 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 right. Who does the NRA work for? Who does the work? Jesus? <laughs> If they're a single, if they're a single issue organization, who do they work for? Yeah, that's what I'm asking. And you. I'm saying, who benefits? Who benefits from the NRA success? Gun makers, Republicans, gun makers, gun makers. Uh, so who wants to? Who wants to overturn gun control uh, laws in other countries? Gotcha. So they can sell guns. It's like the fucking. Mil- yes. It's like the fucking military. Just on a different. Actually, it's like it's like tobacco manufacturers. Yeah, it's exactly the same as tobacco manufacturers. It's tobacco manufacturers start lobbying groups because they don't want tobacco regulation legislation coming right. in. It's exactly what the NRA does. It's all about helping gun manufacturers sell more guns. So, so we have more. We have a hundred one guns for every hundred people in the United States, but we're still producing hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, or millions of guns more each year, and we have to sell them to somebody. Exactly. Fuck. So let's look at the money. This might help explain it. So where does the NRA get its money from? Well, it comes from a... uh, I can't say that word. It comes from a combination of contributions, grants, royalty income... And advertising, a lot of the advertising coming from gun industry sources. Uh, in 2016, if I use that to break it down, right? So they, they reported $433.9 million in revenue. Um, the majority of that comes from membership dues. About $163 million comes from membership right. dues. They, they run programs like events and training. They make about another $69, $70 million out of that. They have investments, royalties, assets that brought in $30 million. They also had cash and investments totaling $173 million. Damn. But the biggest source, the single biggest source of funding is from contributions, which was $171 million. Now, this, these contributions are a combination of individual contributions, mm-hmm. some of whom are super rich individuals tied to the gun industry. And corporate donations, again, a lot of it coming out of the gun industry. So the gun industry is helping fund the NRA for a number of reasons, which I'll get into in a minute, Um, beyond just selling, Mm -hmm. uh, creating a market for more guns. NRA is a marketing exercise. It's a marketing tactic for guns, for the gun industry. Today, it wasn't always that way as we saw, but today it is. Now... The NRA runs a program. I posted a link to this on our Facebook page the other day. The NRA Ring of Freedom, which celebrates individual and corporate contributions. If you donate more than a million dollars to the NRA, you get a gold jacket. Ooh, like a golfer. uh, Literally made out of the gold from the teeth of black people that have been (laughs) killed uh, with your guns. Uh, they melt it down and they coat a jacket <laughs> oh, and give it God. to you with the names of all of the people who the gold teeth were taken yeah. from etched on the inner lining in silk embroidery. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's, it sounds right. 
On their website, the NRA have this to say about the Ring of Freedom, and I fucking love it. I wish I'd written this. The NRA Ring of Freedom is dedicated... <coughs> <coughs> Got to do it in voice. Doing Charlton Heston. The NRA... <coughs> <coughs> the NRA Ring of Freedom is dedicated to building relationships with patriots <coughs> who are seeking to secure the future of freedom. Our mission is to gather the resources required to help preserve the uniquely American freedoms set forth by our founding fathers in the Second Amendment. Wow. I can almost hear the angelic choir singing behind me as I say that. Freedom from what? Paying taxes. You don't get much more America than that, my friend. Oh, my God. It's like we're being attacked. It's like we're at war. It's like we're fighting to survive. But from what? The word freedom was used three times in those two sentences. Oh, my God. Uh, I think that's a record. Yeah. Now, donors uh, to the NRA include firearm companies like Midway USA, Springfield Armory, Mm -hmm. Inc., Pierce Bullet Seal Target Systems. The Beretta USA Corporation, Cabela's, an outdoor retailer who sells guns and ammo, Sturm Ruger and Co., and Smith & Wesson, both gun manufacturers. Mm -hmm. NRA also makes about $20 a year from selling advertising in its magazines and its websites. Obviously, majority of that are gun and ammo manufacturers. Additionally, some gun companies donate a portion of their sales directly to the NRA. Crimson Trace, a company that makes laser sights, donates 10% of each sale to the NRA. Uh, A company called Taurus buys an NRA membership for everyone who buys one of their guns. Oh, my God. Sturm Ruger gives $1 to the NRA for each gun sold, which amounts to millions of dollars every year. Right. So the NRA's revenues are intrinsically linked to the success of the gun industry in America. The more guns and ammo that are sold, the more money the NRA makes. The more successful the NRA is in building its membership and and preventing gun control, the more guns get sold, the more money the gun industry makes, the more money the NRA gets, and it's a virtuous circle of circle jerking. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. For the last three, four hours, we've been sitting here. It, the NRA starts out to help with marksmanship. They get into gun control, common sense gun control. They help write legislation. They help try to keep the situation, um, you know, to keep violence down. 2008 or whatever comes along. And now you're fucking telling me we've come full circle and it's all about money. It's always all about money, right? I know, but God. <laughs> Why do you think the founding fathers uh, were tax dodgers? Because it's all about fucking it money. All it's about all about the money. Benjamins. Yeah. Oh, my God. <clears throat> okay, I'm, I'm over myself now. The NRA is a virtual subsidiary of the gun industry. Yeah. Now, it portrays itself as protecting the freedom of individual gun owners... And as we know, freedom is one of those words. Whenever you hear anyone yeah. say anything about freedom, <laughs> check your They're selling something. back pocket yeah. for your wallet. What would yeah. you do with yeah. freedom? 
Sorry. They're actually working to protect the freedom of the gun industry (laughs) to manufacture and sell as many weapons or accessories as possible. First in the United States and then, as you pointed out before, worldwide. They want to go after the entire global market. Now, there are two reasons for the gun industry to support the NRA. Mm. The first is that it develops and maintains and protects the market for their products through lobbying Congress, giving money to election campaigns, um, and all that kind of stuff, and building a membership and getting that membership to vote. I mean, that's beyond purely money. Mm-hmm. The, the the most powerful asset that the NRA has is millions of white cracker members right. who With red hats they can get get out to vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is really what happens. If you if you're a, uh, going up against a, a pro NRA person in Congress or in the Senate. You got to know that they're going to have a ton of people, single issue, single issue voters that the NRA can mobilize to come after. Right. But the second less obvious function uh-huh. that the NRA provides to the gun industry is they're there to absorb criticism whenever there's a mass shooting. Now, if the NRA didn't exist, people would be protesting out the front of Glock or Smith and Wesson. Right. And their officers dragging their CEOs in front of cameras and in front of Congress. That's what happened to the tobacco industry during the 60s and 70s, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the the, the CEOs of the gun industry doesn't want that. So that's the NRA that takes the heat. Uh. That's their job. That's why Wayne LaPierre gets paid a million bucks a year. That's literally what he gets paid um, to, to take the heat from these guys. Right. So they, they don't have the press sitting outside their homes, coming to their offices, etc. So they build the market, but they also act as a buffer from the Don. They're like the, the guy that gets hauled in front of court, the, the, the trigger man. Right. Who, uh, you know, does the jail time, does his five-year stretch. Right. Uh, so the Don doesn't have to. Yeah. His family gets taken care of. Jeez. I, I would just, I was looking. Ad- I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, you go. No, I was just um, one of the things you were talking about about pumping money into elections, and I'm sure you've run across this. Uh, the NRA spent three hundred sixty thousand dollars on the Colorado recall election of 2013, um, which saw the ouster of Senators John Morris and Angela Giron. Uh, they're the ones who had uh, helped pass expanded background checks and ammunition, ammunition magazine capacity limits after the uh, shooting of Sandy Hook uh, and some other shootings as well. So, again, this horrible, tra- this horrible tragedy. They help expand background checks and some other things, and they get targeted. They get voted out of office. Everybody else gets scared back into line. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Adam Winkler, who I mentioned before, wrote this book about um – sort of gun control in the U.S., um, law, constitutional law professor at UCLA, wrote this book, Gunfight. He's talking about the NRA's members. He says, NRA members are politically engaged and politically active. They call and write elected officials. They show up to vote, and they vote solely based on the gun issue. Yeah. Now, um, 
In one study I read, people who are in favour of permits for gun owners describe themselves as more invested in the issue than gun rights supporters did. But the people in the gun rights supporters group were four times as likely to have donated money and written to a politician about the issue. Damn. So they're just four times as politically active than everybody else. Now, one guy who's been trying to fight the NRA on this is uh, Michael Bloomberg, Mm -hmm. um, owner of Bloomberg Media Company, former mayor of New York. Right. Uh, He created a super PAC a few years ago called Independence USA, which has spent millions backing gun control candidates. He's personally pledged $50 million to the cause. Mm. And... He also created something called Every Town for Gun Safety. There's sort of a media campaign behind this. Right. So he's trying to erase the financial incentives, at least, for Republicans to stick with the NRA. He's going to meet them dollar for dollar in terms of donations. Mm-hmm. But it's not just money that's the problem, right? right? If, you, if you can match the money, but then you've got these voters that are the other issue that he's got to try and catch up with. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to add real quick that a quote from uh, George Stephanopoulos, who said, let me say one nice thing about the NRA. They're good citizens. They call their congressmen. They write. They vote. They contribute. And they get what they want. Over time, just like you were saying, they're they are laser focused. They have money. They show up. They participate, and they pay their dues. And that is just, I mean, how do you chip a, chip away at a power block like that? Yeah, yeah. Good question. One of the most prominent critics of uh, gun control uh, was uh, Texas Senator John Cornyn, Republican. Mm-hmm and an NRA ally. Uh, Over the last decade, the NRA has given him about $30,000 for his campaign. So that's not a huge amount of money. Right. We're not talking he got a million bucks, $30,000. Now, I don't know that that's a huge amount for a 10-year period for a campaign. Doesn't sound like it. Uh, in 2014 alone, the NRA gave him $9,900, which was more than it gave to any other Republican senator during that election cycle. Right. But that's just a drop in the ocean uh, compared to the other sources of money that Cornyn got in that year. He raised $14 million in 2014, mm. including $57,000 alone from Exxon. NRA wasn't even in his top 15 biggest contributors. But that may be because he's already an ally of the NRA and they don't need to tickle him with uh, a magic feather so much, right? (laughs) You're going to throw your money at the people you need to get over the line, not the people that are well and truly already over the line. Yeah. Plus, they'll just tell their voters to show up and... He'll get their votes. He gets a little bit of money because it, it looks good. But, yeah, they'll show up and vote for him. So he's in, in the camp. You're absolutely right. They have to go, for, go at other people. But he is one of the biggest recipients of NRA cash in Congress. Mm. They reckon over the study I read that it said over the course of a decade, NRA's contributions to his campaign funds would, might be about 1% of his fundraising. Right. 
Now, the NRA does pump money into other things, though. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the Republican lawmakers could fund their campaigns just fine if the NRA stopped giving them cash. It's good, but it's not really where the action is at. And I think that's a... That's an assumption most people make that doesn't bear out in the stats. It's mm. not that they're throwing money at their campaigns. So where's their money going? Although, yeah. Well, it goes into lots of different areas. Um, but I just want to finish it. So they gave close to a million dollars to Republican senators' PACs in 2014. Mm-hmm which, again, was about 1% of the money that the PACs raised in general. But they have 5 million members that are the ground troops to volunteer in campaigns, call congressional officers, sit on social media, post bullshit statistics to go on and on and on about the Second Amendment and the Founding Fathers and all this kind of stuff until it just becomes common wisdom. Yeah. And no one is fighting it. The other side isn't going, sorry, that's bullshit. Calling bullshit on all of that. Right. Go listen to Ray and Cam. Yeah. You know? It's a single issue party that has 5 million members that it can activate to go out there and just wave the flag, their particular flag. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just very effective lobbying group. It, it- now, there are lots of groups. I'm sorry, I just, want to, I just want to add on to that, and this might be a bit obvious, but those 5 million members, they're probably more affluent than not. They're probably, like my father, retired with a lot of time on their hand than not. They're probably, uh, you know, um, technologically uh, knowledgeable. They know how to use uh, apps and, and websites and computers and things like that. So this is a very, uh, again, just an educated, motivated group with money and time, and that makes them even more powerful than their number of five million. And they're also crazy, <laughs> a lot of them. I mean, yeah. look, no disrespect to anyone out there who's a gun owner. I mean, I, look, there are, there are legitimate reasons to own a gun, I've, I've heard from some of our listeners that are gun owners and they've given me their legitimate reasons and I fully support that. People who live out in, you know, the wilderness and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. That's fine. There are legitimate reasons to own a gun everywhere. Um, but these people that, that get out and vote for the NRA and support the NRA, come on. You know that most of them are uh, kind of crazy Trump voters, right? Yeah. They're kind of, they're, they're a little bit cray-cray. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, the point I was going to make before is there are lots of lobby groups in Washington. A lot of them have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. A lot of them have mass membership. And there are even a bunch of them that have a narrow focus. They have their one issue, single issue things. But there tends to be a trade-off between having a narrow focus and a huge membership. Right. The NRA is almost unique in combining the two. Oh. Massive membership, unique focus, and a ton of money. Yeah. They check and that's the why they're more, yeah. they're more powerful um, than other lobby groups, and, and they're more powerful on this issue than other advocacy groups. And, and their, their mobilization of their, their membership base is more important than their political donations. Right. Because their people vote. They turn up and they vote. 
And as we saw in Alabama, that's more powerful than anything else. And, of course, in countries like Australia and the United Kingdom, we have mandatory voting. So everyone turns up to vote Mm. in a country like this. Your country, not so much. No. Because you believe in democracy so so much, you don't believe people should actually be active in it. Do me a favor real quick, since your internet's better than mine. Look up the population of Alabama, because the votes were about um, 1.2 million people that voted in Alabama. It's just, it'd be interesting to see how, what percentage of the state population. Sweet home Alabama. (laughs) Um, As of the 2010 census... Yeah. Uh, well, as of 2016, it's estimated to be 4.86 million. 4.8. How many voted? Uh, about 1.2 million. It was about 25%. Yeah, yeah. And again, it shouldn't have been that close in the first place, but it was. And uh, about 72%, 73% of the population are white. Yeah. 26% black, 1%. Yeah, so not enough whites got out and voted. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Well, we support pedophilia, but we ain't going to vote for him. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, So this is the key key point with the NRA here is that they can mobilize the voters. Now, interestingly, whenever there are polls in the U.S. about tightening gun control laws, they normally show that more Americans are in favor of tightening gun control than relaxing them. But the gun rights advocates are just more likely to be single-issue voters Mm -hmm. and get out there and just hammer at it, right? Right. So I think your politicians over there are scared of NRA members, Mm -hmm. scared of losing their seats. They, so they would much rather support the NRA than lose their seat. That's what it comes down to at the end of the day. Right, right. Even if they personally don't agree with, uh, yeah. you know, guns in the streets. Sure. It's better than losing your, you know, getting voted out and having to go get a real job and survive in the world like the rest of us do. You just go along with it and you get their votes, you get their money and you, you get to stay in Congress and get treated like royalty. What's not to like about that? The other thing that the NRA has here is a better ground game than anyone else. They not only have their magazines and their websites where they can communicate to their membership, emailing lists and telephone numbers and all that kind of stuff. There are many, many independent gun magazines that are going to carry the story. Thousands of gun shops and gun clubs across the country that spread the message to the people. Mm-hmm. There are no no gun shops. Uh, there are just gun shops. Right. So when you're trying to get the message out to gun owners to get out and vote, they have lots of different channels that are freely available to them to get that story out there because all of those other organizations, the gun magazines, the gun shops, the gun clubs, also prosper. It's in their own vested interests mm-hmm. that uh, there are no restrictions on gun ownership in the country. So they're able to you know, just really effectively get the message out there. Now, it's got to a point in America, Ray, where Congress isn't just against 
gun regulation. Right. It's also against any research on gun violence. Mm. Yeah, because you know about the CDC ban. I I remember something on NPR about yeah they wanted to research it because it needs to be treated like a disease. Obviously, it's a crisis that has to be dealt with, and they were shut down or defunded or or something. I mean, they were threatened. I can't remember the details. There is a there is a twenty year ban oh, on funding for the CDC to research gun violence. <sighs> Which is why we have to vote Democratic, so we can get that back. I, I would like to announce now that I am moving to Wickham, which is a small town in southern Britain, uh, as soon as I possibly can. So for those of you who live there, uh, get ready to make room. You know, it's a bit like when the Christians took over Rome <laughs> um, in the late 4th century. Right. You weren't, you weren't even allowed to talk about yeah. Whether or not their interpretation of uh, the Bible was correct or not. It's like by club. It was just, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> Bible not, club. So the CDC is not even allowed to right. research it. There was, a, there was a proposal in 2015 to end the ban, but the GOP, who controlled Congress at the time, killed it. Jeez. Re- Sorry. Uh, Tom Cole, who's a Republican uh, representative from Oklahoma, said of the proposal... We don't think this place is the appropriate place for a debate over the Second Amendment. They don't think any place is appropriate. What that's got to do with research, (laughs) I don't know. The Republicans wrote, the restriction is to prevent activity that would undertake activities to include data collection for current or future research, including under the title Gun Violence Prevention, that could be used in any manner to result in a future policy, guidelines or recommendations to limit access to guns, ammunition, or to create a list of gun owners. So, in other words, knowledge is bad. Yeah. Okay. Any knowledge that could be used to change things, we don't want to have. So you're not even allowed to do research. To improve things. Yeah. Now... The NRA, of course, loves mass shootings. In the first 18 days after the Sandy Hook school massacre that we mentioned at the beginning of our American episodes, it happened five years ago today. In the first 18 days after the Sandy Hook school massacre, the NRA gained more than 100,000 new members. Shit. Well, I'm just going to be Christian and chalk that up to fear. I don't know. And as I pointed out earlier, since the Sandy Hook shooting, yeah. the NRA's revenues have doubled. Okay, that's just stupidity. Paranoia, fear, I don't know. Well, well, they, yeah, they, they use mass shootings to roll out their stock to standard messages. Number one... Yeah, you know, if you don't, if those people had only had guns, they right. would, they would have been able to prevent that. They'd all be alive today. And two, the government's going to use this to come and take your guns. So go buy more guns. Oh God! To stop them from taking your guns. I don't know. So once I have twenty guns, um, am I safe? Is it thirty guns? No, you never, ne- never, never can have enough guns. Okay, right? just checking. Just checking. However, as I said. 
many times, the homicide rate and the crime rate in the United States has been dropping for the last 20 years, just Mm -hmm. like it's been dropping in Australia, the UK, and Canada, various macroeconomic reasons. And it's difficult to compare crime stats across the four countries because they're all measured differently and there's the duking the stats problem that we know from the wire. Mm -hmm. That said, (laughs) most research agrees that the overall total crime rate of the United States is higher than other developed countries, specifically Europe, with South America and Russia being the exceptions. Mm -hmm. And the homicide rate in the United States is substantially higher than the rest of the world, as is the prison population. Right. Which brings me to my conclusions, Ray. Okay. I think we can wrap all this up. Hour three. I'm nearly done. Hey, let me, let me just piss every non-American off real quick, if I may. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Okay, so I was I was doing some research on the American exceptionalism and gun control, and you know America was special. It's been ordained by God. You know the whole argument. I don't have to go into that. But one of the things I was able to find was that because we are special, because we are better than everyone else, we can't learn lessons from other countries like Australia and the UK because they're beneath us. And also, we can't um, we can't be wrong. If we have guns, then it's right to have guns because we're Americans and we're better than everybody else, and we have better ideas. So, when you take, I know that sounds insane, but when you take things like that and you make it a part of the mix, it just makes the whole comp- the, the trying to come up with a solution for guns just that much more complicated. Yeah, I get the sense that there is that, I mean that that um, that kind of thinking. Yeah. in some parts of the American psyche. Yeah. yeah, I just I was like, really? I mean, because Americans are we're supposed to respect results. We think that we're really into you know just prove it to me and I'll and I'll you know I'll, I'll acknowledge whatever. So we've got all this proof that you and I have already pointed out: Australia, UK, Japan, Germany, whatever. And we're like, yeah, no, no, wouldn't work here or whatever. But again, it just it just flies in the face of our own supposed love of common sense um, that we supposedly revere so much. It it's a religious thing. Um, mm. It reminds me of a religious thing. So, you know, if you ever have a conversation with a with a true believer, right? Um, and you provide evidence for why God doesn't exist or Jesus didn't exist or, or why you know their, their religion, whatever it is, it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. They will find ways to duck and weave and dodge and they go for gaps. It's God of the gaps. You know, I was um, – you may have seen this on Facebook, but I was, uh, was in the city with one of my kids, Hunter, the other day. By the way, Hunter started his first day at work today. Can you believe this? Three weeks out of finishing grade 12. Nice. A um, couple of months before university starts. Um, he went to his first job interview ever, landed it. Nice. And he starts today as a marketing assistant at a company. He's going to do a marketing degree next year. He basically taught every – because he's sort of worked part-time for me, uh, interned for me over the last year. He took everything he's learned from me, just regurgitated it, landed a <laughs> job as a marketing assistant. Nice. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm super impressed. Yeah. Um, 
But he and I were in the city uh, last week going to a thing, and, and there was this guy standing in the middle of a mall uh, just ranting Jesus-y stuff. Young guy. Um, looked a bit like Jack Black. Tubby, beard kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I stood and listened to him for a few minutes, and then I had to go to this meeting. And then on my way back, he was quiet. He was sitting there talking with a couple of his mates, and I had a conversation with him. I said, hey, how's, how's your voice holding up? Because he was really screaming. Right. And he goes, yeah, it's a little bit raspy. And I said, yeah, you need to need to be careful, man. You'll lose your voice. And then we had this conversation and, and you know, we got into the history. I, there was a couple of things that he was said in his preaching that I took issue with. And I said, you know, that's not actually correct. And we started talking about stuff. And, um, you know, I got, I got into uh, who wrote the Bible. Right. And he said, well, you know, Jesus's disciples did. I said, uh, like the people who knew him, yeah. I said, no, that's not true. He goes, yes, it is. And I said, well, look, um, I'm in the process of making a documentary where I'm actually interviewing New Testament scholars around the world on this subject. And I can quite confidently tell you that the vast majority of New Testament scholars, Christian New Testament scholars, Mm -hmm. academics who study this for a living, would say that you're wrong. Right. And he was like, well, I I don't think I am. (laughs) I I know what I know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then... We, you know, we got to the point about, you know, after, and it was a very pleasant conversation for half an hour or so. Um, he said, well, you, do you believe in God? I said, no, I see no I said, Well, first of all, I said, well, it depends on your definition. But I said, no, I don't believe in the kind of God you believe in. He goes, well, I know for a fact that he exists. Yeah. Oh, no, he said, this is, he said, um, I said, uh, but he said, you can't have proof that he doesn't exist. I said, no, I didn't say that I have proof. He said, you can't prove a negative. I said, I'm not. I'm not I'm, I don't say I have proof that God doesn't exist. Mm. I just don't believe there's any evidence. Therefore, I don't believe in, that God exists. Right. He said, well, you're, that makes you an agnostic then, not an atheist. I said, no, it doesn't. He goes, yes, it does. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I said, no, look, <laughs> theist is a one who believes in gods. A, meaning not, is one who doesn't believe in gods. So if we're going to talk about the Greek, I mean, it means someone who doesn't believe in gods. He goes, no, you're an agnostic because you can't be sure. I said, okay, but then you're also an agnostic because you can't be sure he does exist. You don't have proof. Oh, snap. Yeah, I, I do. I do. Now he said, yeah, I do. I have proof. I absolutely know God exists. I said, all right. So I'm going to propose to you an experiment that I've proposed to others before. Um, let's create a scenario where we get a lot of uh, random sick people. Let's say we get a ra- people with cancer. And um, we divide them into three groups. We have a control group in the middle. Mm-hmm. We have a group that you pray for to God to make them better. Mm -hmm. And then we have a group that I don't pray for and I just rely on science to do their best. And we'll see what happens with them over the course of six months. At the end of that six months, if your group has performed statistically better than the control group or my group, I will put it down to your prayer and I will convert to whatever brand of Christianity you want, <laughs> and I will stick with it. However, if your group does not outperform the control group or my group, you have to recant your Christianity, publicly declare yourself an atheist, and never go back to church again. Oh, my God. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. I said, why not? He said, God doesn't like to be tested. I said, well, I think that tells me everything I need to know about how much you actually believe that you're right. Thank you very much. It's been a nice conversation. God's a nine-year-old girl. (laughs) Doesn't like to be tested. (laughs) 
Well, you know, somebody send God to Roy Moore in Alabama, I think. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> let me finish my conclusion. Yeah. Oh, no, no, my point was, so, so that's the same way it is talking with gun, you know, right. gun people or people who believe in free will. It doesn't matter. You can give them as much facts or data as you want. Actually make it worse. They're just going to go, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but. They duck and they weave. And, but that's all right. We, I'm not here to convince anyone. I'm not here to change anyone's thinking. I'm not even here. I mean, as I said before, I don't think America's ever going to change. I think you're fucked, not just with gun control. I think generally speaking, China and India are going to overrun your economy um, and you, you know, you're going to have 25 years of Trump presidency and then the Trump kids and the whole thing. Right. Um, the next time. I'm just interested in, I'm just interested in the history, the story, man. I don't give a fuck what happens. Right. It, doesn't, it makes no difference to me. <laughs> I love a good story. AI and climate change are going to kill us all anyway in the next 50 yeah. years, so it doesn't matter. No pressure. I'm just telling stories for a living. Anyway, why is America different? Now, I'm not here to pass judgment. I'm not here to tell you that you're doing it wrong. It's your fucking country. Right. But I think we've examined the usual reasons people give for why America is different over the course of the last few episodes, and I think it's pretty evident that they're bullshit. They don't stand up to the slightest amount of investigation. So I, at the end of the day, I think it breaks down to three things. Number one, Americans think guns are a right. The rest of the world think mm. they're a privilege. Two, the NRA went rogue in the late 1970s and turned itself into a massively powerful lobbying group for the gun industry and a voting block. Three, mm. America is just a much more violent country than comparable countries. And I have to ask why. Why is America just a much more violent country? Suicides are going up, not down. Homicide rates, uh, just to, to remind everybody, the USA has 488 intentional homicides per 100,000 people. Which, by the way, I said it's been coming down. The rate is the lowest now that it's been since the late 1950s. Mm. So this isn't a wow. new thing. It's been violent for a long time. Right. Australia, by comparison, only has 0.98 intentional homicides per 100,000, nearly five times less. The UK, 0.92. USA's homicide rate is roughly five times that of Australia and the UK, three times as high as Canada, six times as high as Germany and Italy. If you do an average across other countries that are identified as being developed, the average homicide rates across all of them is 0 0.8 per 100,000. America's is 488 it's a much more violent country. Now, why? Now, is it much more violent because you have more guns or do you have more guns because you're more violent? Right. The research, researchers at the National Research Council said there is little evidence that violent attacks occur more frequently in the United States than elsewhere. It's that the lethality of those attacks is higher. Right. Ah, but it's hard to get. We we'll just do it better. It's hard to get past yeah. the gun stuff, but 
I know you wanted to talk about Switzerland, and this is where I've got Switzerland in my notes. Switzerland trails only behind the US, Yemen, and Serbia in terms of the number of guns per capita. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about what you learned about Switzerland? Well, I just thought this was interesting, and again, just just how they handle things in their and their their point of view when it comes to guns. Uh, let's see here. The ownership of weapons in the United States by private citizens is not matched anywhere else in the world. Switzerland is close, but their training is far better. The commitment to uh, the commitment of national defense by an armed electorate in Switzerland is like nothing else in the modern world. Being a part of a citizen army is a matter of national pride there. What we see in Switzerland is a part of a national ethic ethic committed to the autonomy of Switzerland and the maintain maintenance of that autonomy. The Swiss stay neutral. They are, they are armed to the teeth as the best way of staying neutral. In other words, in Switzerland, it is a matter of national priority that men will be willing to fight, trained to fight, and armed with military weapons. But that is not the American tradition. The American tradition is far more a matter of individual autonomy, individual ownership of weapons, and not a matter of national pride. So again, they have guns. They have a lot of guns. They train people. These these people uh, take it very seriously. But when they're not training, the guns are put away. But they're ready to come out in a moment's notice and fight. But they're looking at foreign enemies. Americans, when we think of guns, we think of our individual right to protect myself from anybody, even my fellow Americans. So again, it's just our perception, our history with it, and and the way we view ourselves that makes our experience with guns just so vastly different than what Switzerland has. Yeah, government figures in Switzerland show that their homicide rate is about 0.5 per 100,000 inhabitants, one-tenth of the United States. And they've only yeah. had one... They've got a lot of guns. They've only had yeah. one mass shooting in the last 40 years. That's staggering. They also, of course, have a great safety net mm-hmm. in terms of, like, the welfare state. Right. But as you said, you know, the main, one of the main differences between Switzerland and the United States is people in Switzerland are worried about being invaded, so it's a, it's a national safety concern, and they nearly were by the Nazis. In fact, you know, there's one point of view that they would have been invaded by the Nazis in World War II if they all hadn't had guns and been trained as sharpshooters from the age of 12. Um, but it's not for personal safety, so it's culturally different, <clears throat> just in terms right. of how they think about the reason for having guns and how they look after each other as a society. You know, in my research, I also looked about, I wondered if it was about Christianity. Is the fact mm-hmm. that America is a very Christian nation, does that make it more violent? About 70% of Americans are Christians, which is pretty high compared to Australia. It's only 52% now. Right. But the UK is 64%. It makes us more judgmental. The UK is 64%, Germany is 60%. So I wouldn't say there's a lot of difference between 60, 64, 70, and yet the rates of violence Mm -hmm. in those countries are much lower. Right. Some people have suggested to me in emails that it's got to do with the non-white population of America. And we know that there is, you know, a lot of a lot of the the homicides and the the violence is in inner city areas, and there are uh, black people uh, involved. But the UK has a huge non-white population too. Seventy percent of Americans are mm-hmm. white. Eighty percent of 
people in the UK are white. So there's 20 to 30% non-white population in both countries. So I don't think it's about race per se. The UK has a high non-white population as well, but their homicide rates are nowhere near the United States, one-fifth of the United States. So it's not about race, but it might be about how the races are treated and have been treated in the last Mm -hmm. 50, 100 years. It might be about the social safety net. You know, we just talked about this on the Cold War show recently, right? The introduction of national health care in Britain in 1911, I think we said. 1911. Mm-hmm. So, the, you know, the, and, and then, you know, after World War II, during the government of um, our mate Clement Attlee, you know, they really started to build a strong welfare state in, uh, right. in the United Kingdom. Now, the US got a little bit out of the New Deal in the 30s, but it got dismantled pretty quickly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it hasn't, hasn't been rebuilt. So... And it's true, of course, that, that as we explained, that a lot of the violence in America happens in high poverty-stricken, violent inner-city inner areas that probably haven't had significant investments in the last 50, 60 years in infrastructure, education, health care, programs to get people out of poverty. Yeah, training, yeah. And then, as we saw, there was a massive increase in violence in America from the late 60s onwards, which seems to coincide with the end of segregation, the civil rights movement, soldiers coming home from Vietnam, mm-hmm. and the Black Panthers saying, hold on, we have the right to bear arms and right. uh, you know, the white people getting scared about the blacks having guns, etc., etc." So my summary is that I think the violence problem in America is tied in with the same reasons you have mass shootings the same reason why your suicide rate is increasing. There's just a lack of safety net, health care, mental health care, and as you said, the amount of hours and weeks Americans work, the obsession with money, the, the lack of holidays, vacation time, the obsession with founding fathers and what people 250 years ago thought about things. <laughs> I keep thinking... Lack of compassion. Yeah, yeah. I keep thinking about what my friend Chris said when he moved back to Brisbane after living in the US for eight years. He was in Silicon Valley. And he said it took a few months, but then he felt this enormous cloud that had been hanging over him start to dissipate and that he hadn't even been aware of the cloud until he'd been back here for a few months. And he just realised, wow, Wow. you know, that, that constant barrage of... This, that, negativity, negativity, red versus blue, mass right. shootings, fear, terror, doesn't exist as much here. Not to say that, right. again, we're perfect by any stretch, but that, at least in his view, that doesn't exist. And that's been reflected by other Americans I know that live here now, like Chrissy and other people. So I think it's a cultural... It permeates. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a lot of things that go into it. I think Americans, the American culture is just, uh, look, again, great in many ways, but messed up, deeply, deeply dysfunctional, messed up in many ways. And uh, we've right. explored some of those over the last three hours, at least as it contributes to 
the prevalence of guns and violence and suicide in American culture. Yeah, it's truly, I mean, if you actually stop and think about it, it, you get very despondent very quickly. And just knowing that is so complex of an issue that, how do you even begin to unwrap it? And it just... It just keep it just keeps you down. It keeps you feeling hopeless and numb. Well, not me. I don't give a fuck. Your country. I will be no, there though. That, for I'm a talking week. about me and right. We'll try to clean it up while you're here. I'll be in LA on the 17th, um, and then I'll be in. We'll both be in Raleigh, North Carolina, from the 18th to the 21st, and then I'll probably be in New York for a day or two, and then I think I'm going up to Toronto for a couple of days. So. If you're in or near any one of those areas and you want to catch up, have a drink, come to dinner with us in a group of people, have a stogie, whatever, drop us an email. Let me read a review. Dickie Third from Australia. Any truth out there? And the boys are back with this show. Certainly should provoke some thought. The historical facts check out, and there is plenty of speculation that will have you seriously doubting what you may currently think about the whole big mess in the Middle East. Oh, I guess he wrote this a while ago. Looking forward to future right. episodes. Hope it makes Cam and Ray feel better getting all this stuff off their respective chests. <laughs> Thanks, Dickie the it Third. It does, actually. Shoot it us, does. Shoot us an email yeah. with your address. We'll send you a token gift of our appreciation. That's the end of gun control, folks. I don't know what we're going to do next, Ray, but um, I guess we'll, yeah. we've got a month to work it out. Right. Trump! Anyway. Yeah, maybe Trump, maybe, um, uh, uh, what did we say, Uh, vaccinations? like 15 vaccinations, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Who knows? We'll see. All right. Uh, Hope you learned something, folks, over that six hours of gun control stuff. I certainly did. Not sure I'm clearer on the path forward as i've said i don't think there is a path forward i think you're just fucked but uh at least we know why you're fucked now so that's yeah yeah that's my job that's something yeah right thanks buddy (laughs) take care